0: This morning's reading is from John 14, verses 1 through 6. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. All right. Thank you, Eric. Morning, Redemption. Good to see you all. If you're new, my name is Frank. I'm the lead pastor at Redemption Arcadia, and we are glad that you are here worshiping with us uh, this morning. Um, I know Malia took care of one of the announcements, but I actually have two others. Uh, if you'll just uh, hang in there with me on these. Uh, the first one is, Redemption Church is pregnant. Let me just let that s- settle in for a second. It's, it's kind of like the Arcadia ethos lately, you know, there are a lot of pregnant people in Arcadia. But anyway, the church is pregnant. Uh, we, are gonna, we are in the process now, the early stages of planting our 10th congregation. Uh, I want to tell you a little bit about it because it's going to affect us uh, more directly than any of the other uh, congregations. Uh, if you remember a couple weeks ago, um, uh, Seth Trout was here preaching. He's from Gateway out in Queen Creek. Uh, there's another pastor out there named Josh Watt. He's been with us for a number of years, young guy, but he's been with us for a long, long time, comes to all the Uh, preaching uh, collectives, Uh, he runs their student and family ministries out there, which is uh, about 500 people. So he's running a medium-sized church already. Um, He believes that God is, he feels the call that God is uh, calling him to plant a redemption uh, church, and um, the the lead team has worked with him and has clearly affirmed that. He's been through all of the assessment process, and he's going to be planting in North Phoenix somewhere. Um, now, this is going to take a little while. He probably actually won't launch until uh, extremely late 2020 and more likely early 2021. Um, but just so that you have some, uh, some understanding of where this might be, where they're looking initially uh, is in the area north of Cactus, south of the 101, uh, east of the 17, and west of the 51. Now, I will tell you, I will. T- that's a big area, right? But I will tell you that my intuition tells me that they will likely end up somewhere either in the Moon Valley area or along what we would call the 51 corridor. It just seems that those would be the two most likely areas, which means he might even end up a little bit east of the 51 if the, if the right property and the right situation uh, came along. So, obviously, we're going to be uh, the closest... Um, congregation in terms of of uh, 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 geography and we're excited about that. Uh, and so uh, I've already been working with Josh uh, to uh, tell him that we want to partner with him in this as much as he would like us to and as much as our congregation uh, individually would be interested in, in doing that. And so uh, one of the things we're doing is that he is he is working through uh, May at Redemption Gateway, and then uh, he and his family are going to move somewhere into the North Phoenix area and and start his work there on on launching, developing communities and and working with people who specifically have an interest in in church planting. Uh, one of the uh, um, uh, Sundays in August he is going to be coming here to preach all three services and on that Sunday also we are planning to have a lunch after the second service so that he can also do some vision casting and answer any questions from anybody who would like to come uh, to that lunch because uh, we know for a fact based on our surveys that Redemption Arcadia has uh, a number of people who come from uh, that North Phoenix area down here. It doesn't necessarily mean that you are destined to leave Arcadia, but it may mean that you are thinking, I would like to help Josh in this new venture and and maybe help him plant. And so this would be a way for you to be able to get more information and get connected uh, with Josh to be able to do that and get your questions answered. Uh, The only thing that uh, Redemption Church, Big R, is asking of our congregation is that if you are interested uh, in more in what Josh is doing, and you're thinking that you're interested in helping him plant, which we would love, we would ask that you would come through the leadership at Redemption Arcadia so that we can connect you properly to Josh Watt. So that's, that's our ask. That's sort of our loose plan now for the next several months. Um, but this is happening. This is a go, and we're very, very excited uh, about it. And, and we think this is a, a wonderful plant for Josh and a, and a, and a great thing for For him. So if you have any questions about that, be sure to get in in touch with me. I'd be happy to uh, answer any questions. But like I said, there's no rush. He's going to be here in August and probably won't plant until January, February 2021. Okay? So that's the first announcement. That was like a sermon in itself. But here's the second announcement. I know, we got a lot to say today. Here's the second announcement. Um, We are back on track now. We have our entire uh, year of 2020 of midweek and Thursday night events pretty much scheduled now, and so the first one is coming up pretty soon. Obviously, we're having um, the backstories with the Busbys uh, this coming Thursday, Uh, but the following Wednesday, the following two Wednesdays, Wednesday, March 11th, and Wednesday, March 18th, uh, Trey Fraley and I will be teaching a midweek uh, uh, study on the authority of the Bible and how to read the Bible for all of all its worth. And so, uh, the first night we're going to talk about very simply what is the Bible. Uh, and I know that sounds really basic, and there will be some basics there, but if you've ever wondered how the Bible got put, to, put together and what is the chronology and, and how are the messages different in each of the books, all of that, that first night would be really, really helpful for you. And then the second night, we're going to talk about how to read the Bible, how to get more out of it as as you read it. Uh, both nights are going to be set up where there's some... Uh, sort of lecture or discussion or teaching for 30 to 40 minutes and then for the last uh, 20 to 30 minutes we're going to open it up for questions and people can ask questions so that'll be March 11th and March 18th that'll uh, those will be our midweek um, uh, uh, classes uh, during that time um, I will also just mention a little bit of a preview. Tyler James and I, at the end of March and the beginning of April, are going to do a midweek uh, class on parenting that we think will be really helpful as well. And, and we, I know we have a few parents around here, so <laughs> that might be helpful. And parents, that, uh, you know, who are anticip- people who are anticipating being parents. So, anyway... Uh, Those are my announcements for this morning. If you want more information, uh, go to our website or or come talk to me. uh, Go to the Connect desk. Uh, We'd be happy to help you out with all of those. We're going to talk about Jesus today, but um, I think we should pray first. All right, Uh, Lord God, it is a great privilege to be able to proclaim your gospel and to teach your word and to be able to hear that. And so help us now as we do that. I pray that you would move any uh, unhelpful human or worldly element out of our way right now so that your spirit would reign completely and freely in our hearts, in our minds, and in the way we receive this message. And also, please be the one that guides the message as it goes out as well. pray that we would be blessed by this time and that you would be given all glory. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So last week we started a seven-week series called Countercultural Convictions. Last week we started by talking about love. Uh, Next week we're going to talk about the authority of the Bible. Uh, We're going to talk about the following weeks, gender and then sex. Um, Those two weeks you might just... Consider a little bit more about the age appropriateness for some of the kids that you might bring into um, uh, the service and and, uh, how much conversation you're going to want to have with them after the service. (laughs) Um, And then the last two weeks will be on salvation, specifically uh, atonement and uh, some of those questions that you might have coming out of our membership Uh, papers, and then the final week will be on the vulnerable. We're going to be talking uh, about that, but today we get to talk about Jesus, and there's so much that we could say about Jesus, obviously, so we're going to press into just two things today. Number one, Jesus is the only hope. Yes, only, exclusively. We fully admit right out of the gate, this is an exclusive message. And second of all, we're going to talk about the fact that Jesus is God. Yes, he is God. He's both human and he is God. Like I said, there's more, but we only have so much time. Uh, Rebecca McLaughlin, who who recently published a really helpful book, it's called Confronting Christianity, 12 Hard Questions for the uh, World's Largest Religion. I think she says it well by asking in the book at one point this question. Is a person's belief in and desire to proclaim Jesus akin to telling someone that smoking cigarettes can kill them, or akin to the fact that my grandmother's cooking is better than your grandmother's? In other words, is a discussion of Jesus in the essential category or in the biased opinion category? Uh, Let me read to you the line in our membership packet that introduces the section on Jesus. Jesus is fully God and fully human, the only one in whom salvation is found. So obviously, our answer to McLaughlin's question would be the essentials category. And that opening statement from the membership packet that Jesus is fully God and fully human, wow. Right there, is a potentially long discussion. I'm, I'm, I want you to consider some stuff. I just, just want you to think about it, and it's a long list of things to just consider. Here we go. Jesus is fully both, fully. He's fully God. He's not 50-50. He's fully God and fully human being. So think of it this way. One plus one equals one. Now that's some strange math, my brothers and sisters, but that is gospel math. That's who God is. But also, the scriptures assert that Jesus is God who became human. Let me just read uh, this passage from Philippians chapter 2, which we read at the Ash Wednesday service as well. But this is a great understanding of that. We get a lot of our what's called Christology or the study of Christ from this passage. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 5 through 11. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. We would call that humility. He humbled himself. Born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You don't bow unless he's God. He is God in the flesh. Continue considering. Jesus is also the much-talked-about and promised Messiah that the Old Testament discusses throughout its 1,500-year history. So there's a lot to chew on there as well. During our morning prayer time, which, by the way, you are all invited to from 8 to 8.30 right here in the sanctuary, during our morning prayer time, Trey led us through a discussion of part of that from the book of Isaiah, Isaiah 52 and 53. Uh, he, He is the Messiah, that the Old Testament points to over and over and over. Then we must contend with the fact that the Gospel of John says Jesus' word become flesh. What does that mean? And Jesus was born of a virgin. What? What what are you talking about? Uh, Born of a virgin. Explain that one. In less than 30 seconds. Well, I can. Uh, He was conceived in Mary by the Holy Spirit. That should clear everything right up. (laughs) That helps, right? But also, consider this. Jesus never sinned, was executed on a cross because he claimed to be God, and his teaching riled and roiled the status quo. But then he had the nerve to leave his tomb alive after three days and he promised that he'd be back, bringing bringing with him this new and wonderful city for those who believe in him. Oh, and the reason he did all of this, it's because of love. It's because we are sinners and we desperately need redemption from our sin. And Jesus's life, death, and resurrection are our only hope for that. Are you still tracking with me? This is a lot, isn't it? Now, you might ask, well, what's Jesus doing now? Well, he's sitting at the right hand of the Father, ruling the universe. Duh. (laughs) But he also created the universe, and he reconciles all things to himself, so he probably has a right to rule it. Also, also... Without Jesus, there would be no such things as propitiation, substitutionary atonement, incarnation, sanctification, regeneration, revelation, transfiguration, pneumatology, ecclesiology, eschatology, Christology, and never-ending arguments about Calvinism, Arminianism, paedobaptism, baptism immersion baptism, or who in Arcadia has the best artisan coffee. <laughs> Wouldn't have any of those. Most critically, Jesus is the one who's broken and defeated the power of Satan, sin, and death and gives us new life. And finally, humility is really important. We are called to humble ourselves before Jesus just as Jesus humbled himself and took on the cross. Nothing happens without humility. Tim Keller writes this, You can't bypass repentance and get to grace. Christ is manifest in our humility, not our disobedience. So here's one way to put it. It's time for us, right now, today, in this day and setting, to stop domesticating Jesus. In other words, it's time for us to stop trying to make him palatable to ourselves and to others, by redefining who he is so that we're somehow comfortable with him and instead allow the fact that he is controversial and embrace who he really is and not our imaginary Jesus. So let's study what the scripture says about Jesus for the next 25 or 60 minutes and let's pray that God would move in an exceptional, miraculous, and transformative way. We're going to talk about the fact that Jesus is fully God, as well as human, and we're going to talk about the fact that he's the only way. So let's start with the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verses 1 and 14. Just 1 and 14. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son of the father, full of grace and truth. So the word became flesh. That that phrase became flesh simply means the word became a person. The word became a human. Well, what's the word? (laughs) Because we got to unpack all of that, too. And by the way, we're going to do it in a much deeper way when we start the gospel of John after Easter. But here's a little preview. The Greek word is logos, and, and depending on context, it's an important word, but depending on context, it can have a slightly different meaning. But it, essentially, it means source or truth, capital T truth, or message or divine expression. It, it, it means all of those and more. But for the Greek philosophers of their day, which is an influential bunch of people in the first century, and uh, a pretty significant part of the people that John is writing to, part of the audience that he's writing to, for the Greek philosophers of their day, Lagos was never supposed to take on flesh. Never. So this would have dropped the jaw of any Greek philosopher reading the Gospel of John right out of the gate. Lagos was not a person. Lagos as understood then by the Greek philosophers, was an ethereal explanation of the universe's origins and workings. So John is specifically going at the Greek philosophers, part of his audience, to let him know God's logos is the true logos, and the logos where you can not only find the origins and the workings of the universe, but also the redemption that we need from the fall of the universe because of sin, the fall of creation. John delivers a Logos from God, and the Logos is God, and the Logos has taken on flesh, and he's become human. Furthermore, for the Jews in John's audience, because there were Jews also in his audience, the construction of this section of chapter 1 is an allusion to God giving his law to Moses in Exodus. So the Jews saw this as well. They understood what was going on here as well. And so uh, for the Jew too... God's law is now a person. That's a change for them as well. God's law has taken on flesh. God's law is no longer just a a, a scroll or a tablet or a thought or an aspiration. It's a human being. And although the word, Jesus, did become human, he never ceased being God. He's fully God and fully man. He simply took on flesh as Jesus, the Father's Son, And it's not just that the word and the law are a person. This person entered into the full flow of human affairs and experience. He was not just an observer. He wasn't just a puppet master pulling strings. He entered into our condition, our situation. He dwelt among us. Literally, the language there says that he built a house and moved into the neighborhood. And he did that because he loves us. And this is also, this chapter 1 is a foreshadowing of the second coming, where in Revelation chapter 21, God says this, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And as the full embodiment of God, word, and law, he is full of grace and truth. Again, not 50% grace and 50% truth. He is 100% grace, 100% truth. He never speaks truth without grace, and he never extends grace without truth. He's fully grace and truth all the time. And so now we get to the key passage for today, which Eric read. Let me reread it again, and then we'll pick through it. It's John chapter 14, verses 1 through 6. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you uh, that I, I would I have told what I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again, and I will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the father except through me. Now, this little speech is part of the significant and remarkable things that uh, Jesus says for several chapters to his disciples the night before He's betrayed and and executed with that trial. And Jesus starts this little section, this little speech by saying, let not your hearts be troubled. Why would Jesus start there? Why would they be troubled? Well, there's a couple of things. First of all, it was just revealed to them by Jesus that Jesus was going to be betrayed and the result of his betrayal was going to be execution, these guys had just given three years of their life. They had stopped everything else they were doing, gave three years of, of, of their life to him to be part of his rabbinical yoke, to follow him. They thought they were going to be with him forever, being led by him, listening to his teaching, but he's leaving now. He's going to be executed as a criminal. And second, that means that Jesus does not fit their expectation for the Messiah, The Jewish expectation of the Messiah was that he would be a military conquering hero, especially against the Romans in their context, and not a suffering servant who would end up being executed on a Roman cross. So they were troubled. And why wouldn't they be? This is a complete blow to their centuries-long expectation of who the Messiah would be. Uh, Think of it this way. All of us live our lives by scripts. We have in our mind the way things are supposed to go, the way they're supposed to happen. And this was an extreme violation of the most important script in their life. It was going completely the other way. And when our scripts get violated, it creates trouble for us, right? When things don't go our way, when things don't go as expected, so their hearts are troubled and... Add into that the fact that now they are discovering that the Old Testament promise of new life means that in order for something to live, something first must die, and it's not an animal. His followers are called to follow him by denying themselves and pick up their cross, something that he had taught them just about a week earlier in the Gospels. And and not only that, his followers must embrace the idea that this is the better way. That his way is the better way than any way they've ever conjured in their mind. That submission and humility is the better way. Very countercultural in their context. Probably true in our context as well. So he's dealing with all the trouble that this might bring to one's heart. It's a legitimate concern. But moving forward, he explains why this will be okay. Jesus says, believe in God, believe also in me. The astoundingly radical nature of this simple little statement. We usually just blow by this. This was radical for Jesus to say this to his disciples. I I just imagine that all the air was sucked out of the room when Jesus said this. Why? Well, since the very beginning, the Jews have been taught that God was one. One God was their doctrine. Look in Deuteronomy. And they fiercely held to it. Now Jesus comes, their rabbi, the one who should know better, and he says, believe in me also. He's saying, I'm God. I am God. Clearly declaring to his people and to us that he is God. God is manifest in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then, to help with their troubled hearts... He says, in my father's house are many rooms. What does that mean, many rooms? Well, two things. Uh, The word translated rooms is more accurately translated dwelling places. So there are many places to dwell or to live. The reason it's translated room here specifically is to stay consistent with the description in John 14 of heaven and the new Jerusalem as the father's house. So a house has rooms. So that's why it's done that way. But really, the key to this is not necessarily that there are dwelling places there. We have that figured out. The key word is actually many. There are many rooms. In other words, there's ample space in eternity for believers. There's going to be no overcrowding in heaven. You know, the narrow way and the wide path. This is an invitation. Jesus is giving them an invitation. He's saying, come on in. There's plenty of room. The water's fine. Plenty to eat. You're welcome. Come in. And Jesus continues. He says, "I'm going to go and prepare a place for you." I love this too. We hear that. He's going to go and prepare a place. We always focus on the place, it seems to me, the place. Let's talk about the place. Let's focus on the place. We get excited about the place, and we want to tell the people all about the place, and we should. That's OK. It's a magnificent place, and I know I'm going to enjoy it, and I think you will too. It's heaven. It's the new Jerusalem. It's the restoration of everything. It's the second coming of Eden in some ways. And by the way, if you want to know a little bit more about the new Jerusalem, you can read all about it in the last few chapters of the book of Revelation. It's real, and it's awesome. And and just so you know, I just want you to know, in eternity, those who Jesus are not as Hollywood and other thoroughly misguided cultural elements like to depict, those who know Jesus are not going to spend eternity as chubby little babies with wings, playing a harp, floating around fluffy clouds in loincloths. That's not who we're going to be. That's just so misguided. If that's your picture of heaven, yeah, I don't want to be there either, okay? (laughs) Okay. Okay, I get that. that, but that's not it. There's nothing anywhere other than what we have conjured in this world to depict that. There's nothing like that in Scripture, okay? The New Jerusalem is a real tangible place where we will live and work and relate and love. And Jesus is preparing for us a place, and that's awesome. But I really rarely hear anybody talking about the word prepare. Prepare. What is he doing or what did he do to prepare that place? I imagine, I I know I'm I'm outside of the bounds of scripture here, but I imagine him saying, saying it this way. I go to prepare a place for you. Not I go to prepare a place for you. He's saying I go to prepare a place for you. When we think about this, we tend to think that the preparation comes after the cross, after the resurrection and after his ascension, and that all the preparation takes place there. I hope you realize that there is no there there. There is no place without the crucifixion and the resurrection. Doesn't happen. There is no place to prepare if there is no Good Friday or Easter Sunday. This place is primarily prepared, as Donald Guthrie, a New Testament scholar, puts it, through the passion of Christ and his resurrection. When Jesus said that to his followers then and to you and me today, we need to understand that the preparation he does includes and is dependent upon him going to the cross for us. That is the gospel message. His bogus trial, the beatings, the mocking and humiliation, the pounding of nails into his hands and feet, him hanging on the cross, all of that was preparation for this place for you and me. And then he says, I will come again. Do you know know what that means? It means he's coming again. That's what it means. No Greek trickery there. It means he's coming again. Jesus is not sitting on his hands in heaven. Jesus is not passive in his ruling of the universe. He has a plan, but he's going to execute this plan in his way, not our way, and on his time, not our time. Then Thomas said to him, we poke fun at Thomas all the time. He's always doubting. He's always got these questions. He's always a bit suspicious. Later on, he questions whether or not Jesus was really raised from the dead, and he says, unless I see with my own eyes the holes in his hands and his feet and, and in his side. Unless I see, you know. I would argue, though, that without Thomas's doubts, we would not have some of the clarity that we have about Jesus. He asks good questions that Jesus answers for us, such as here. The answer to Thomas's question is one that makes absolutely, unequivocally clear who Jesus is. This is it right here. Verse 6. Here's the answer. I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Notice the definite articles. He doesn't say, I'm a way, and there are many ways. I am a truth, and there are many truths. There are definite articles there. I am the way, there's no other way. I am the truth, there's no other truth. I am the life, there's no other life. And then just to be clear, just to make sure we get it, He says, no one comes except through me. Do you see any exception clauses there whatsoever? Any exception clauses, anything, any, any. Uh, We were talking about this at um, Preaching Collective a few weeks ago, and Tyler Johnson, it's so hard to talk about Tylers anymore, I'll tell you. But anyway, Tyler Johnson... Uh, our lead pastor said, said this. I thought it was an interesting illustration. So there's a bunch of guys hanging around together at a club. And there's a very pretty lady over there by herself. And so one of the guys is like, man, I'd really like to go over there and talk to her and, and uh, try to meet her and see what happens. And so the guys are like, yeah, go over there, go over there. So, Finally, he gets up, up enough courage to go over there. And he sits down with her and he starts talking to her. And they hit it off pretty good. And so towards the end of the conversation, he says, so could I have your phone number? She says, sure. Here it is. It's 555-1234. He goes, uh, you know, I, I don't like that phone number. Um, I, I would prefer to call you at 555-1122. She says, well, you can do that all you want, but you're never going to get me. There's only one way you can get in touch with me through the phone. That's 555-1234. Uh, I don't accept that. That's, I, 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 I want to dial 555-1122 and get to you. Why can't I do that? Because that's not the way. You can't do that. It doesn't work that way. And so he goes back to his friends and they say, how to go? And he says, well, I, I asked her for a phone number and she gave it to me, but I didn't like the phone number. I didn't like the way, so I'm, 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 I guess I'm not going to go. You see the point we're making here, right? And I know you're going, but that's a phone number. That's science. That's the way that works. It doesn't matter. If Jesus says he's the only way and he is the only way, there is no other way. You can't conjure it. There's no other way. Well, I think there is. I I know. I'm sure you do. I'm sure you do. I'm telling you that in the end you may be disappointed. You're not going to get her phone number right or Jesus's. Jesus does not leave room for customization. It's the only way. And, and you say, well, that's exclusive. You know, what? we accept exclusive all the time. When have you ever, ever, ever said to somebody, I don't like that phone number. I'm going to call you at a different number. When have you ever said to your commercial airline pilot, I want you to fix the flaps on the wing for takeoff and landing this way, not that, this is a much more tolerant and inclusive way. When have you ever said that? We accept exclusive all the time, all the time. But when it comes to God and Jesus, ooh, ooh, too much? Nah. Jesus is the way. We have to think about this. This is part of wrestling with biblical truth. Jesus is the way, and his way is through suffering and humiliation, His way is through sacrifice and forgiveness. His way is through denying yourself and picking up your cross. His way is narrow and exclusive. Yes, exclusive, but everything is exclusive. Do you realize how exclusive everything is? You ever really thought about that? The moment anyone builds a truth, no matter how inclusive and relative you think that truth is, the moment any new or alternative truth is conceived and publicized, it automatically becomes that which you hold in contempt about the truth that you are pushing back against. It becomes that which you criticized as the old or the outdated or the wrong side of history truth. It just does. You can't create a new truth without excluding the old truth, without being exclusionary. People say Christianity is false and bigoted and intolerant. It's not inclusive, and as long as you believe it, you can't be a part of us. Well, didn't you just make the alternative to Christianity exclusive? Yes. Isn't your new tolerant belief system intolerant of my belief system? Yes. Didn't you just make an absolute truth statement by declaring Christianity is false? Of course you did. Let's face it, I mean, this is heavy stuff, and I know, this is very unpopular to say, but I think it needs to be said, especially now in the midst of what we're talking about. In the name of tolerance and inclusivity, Christians are excluded more than just about any other people group today. So Jesus explains, he's the one and he's the only one. And the best part is that he's not filled with hate or scorn, but rather with grace and truth and love. But grace and truth and love misunderstood almost always looks narrow, intolerant, and licentious. Lastly, I want to talk about this. I want to address this issue here because I hear this all the time, continue to hear it all the time. Let me just state this. Jesus is not just a good teacher. He's not just a good teacher. I hear this all the time. Well, I'll give you that. Jesus was a great teacher. Yes, I agree. But he wasn't God. He wasn't God. If you hold to that belief, if there was anybody in here who would, who would say that, Jesus was a great teacher, but he wasn't God, I would just ask you to, to read the scriptures and then follow logically the way that, that statement is, and, and you'll see that that statement cannot possibly work. It doesn't work. I, I just would ask you to wrestle with that yourself, and, and let me help you out a little bit with that. We already have John 14, uh, chapter 14 here, where he says, believe in me also, I'm God. Where he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, that makes him God. In John chapter 10, Jesus also tells the professional religious people, he says, I and the Father, we are one. And again, the way the Greek is constructed there, he's saying, I and the Father, we are one, we are the same essence, we're the same, we're God. And we know that that's what Jesus said to the professional religious people because right after he said it, they they said, we need to kill this guy because he's committed blasphemy. It's blasphemy to compare yourself to God or to make yourself God in their culture. So we know for a fact that they understood Jesus as saying, I am God. So Jesus teaches through and through that he is God. So follow this now, if Jesus is a great teacher and he teaches that he is God, you must believe him because he's a great teacher. But if Jesus really isn't God, making this this claim makes him a terrible teacher. So both can't be true. It cannot both be true that he's a great teacher but not God. He's either a lousy teacher and not God, or he's a great teacher and he is God, but he's not a great teacher and not God. Can't have it that way. That's why C.S. Lewis famously said, Jesus is either a liar, a lunatic, or he is Lord. He can only be one of those three things. And the only way he is a good teacher is, in fact, if he is Lord. You are free to take your pick among the three, but you may only pick one. So our membership packet in this section offers these two questions that kind of close out the section that I think we could reflect on. And I will propose very short answers to each and you can use the answers to investigate further if you, if you like. But here's the first question. In our membership packet it asks this question, why are some people okay with believing in a higher power but are offended by Jesus? Personally for me I think this one's pretty easy. Those who are willing to believe in some vague, nebulous higher power, get to define what or who that higher power is. So essentially and practically, that makes the higher power you. Isn't that convenient? See, Jesus is clearly defined in Scripture. There is no wiggle room, no exceptions. He's God. I'm perfectly fine with you coming and saying, I just don't believe he's God. That's fine. But when you come and you try to make him something that he's not, he's a good teacher but not God, that's where I'm going to go, all right, now we have to have a conversation. Either believe or not. Either you believe the book or you don't. Don't try to make the book say something that it doesn't so that it's more palatable. Here's the second question. Why is it so important that we know that Jesus is both human and divine? Well, first of all, only God can save humans. No human being, no matter how many seminars you attend, no matter how many degrees you earn, no matter how hard you work, no matter how many good deeds you do, no human being can reconcile sinful humanity to a holy God. And further, the sacrifice for sin had to be perfect, and only God is perfect. So there's that. That's why Jesus is God in the body. But also, Jesus is human because God needed to participate in the human experience, to truly connect with us. He had to be us in order to reveal God's grace and love and sacrifice. He had to do it as one of us so that we could comprehend it. That's essentially the beginning of the book of Hebrews in the New Testament. Jesus is Savior specifically and only because he's both God and human. And that's the gospel, that God came to save us for him from him. That's an amazing That's an amazing message, that God would do that for us, and it is the only way. Let's pray together. Uh, Lord God, we thank you for your word and its truth, and we we thank you that there is no equivocation that we can find in your word, That, that, that really... This decision lies with us in the sense that we're going to have to wrestle with, with our own presuppositions, with our own biases. And we recognize that we need the power of the Holy Spirit to be able to do that in a way that's going to that's draw us unto you effectively and comprehensively. And so I pray that that would happen. Pray that we would wrestle with you. Those of us who believe, we need to wrestle with you. Because even those of us who believe, there are parts of this word that we are troubled by. And those who don't believe, I pray you would wrestle. The Holy Spirit would come and help you. Open your eyes. Help you to see. Help you to understand. I pray the work of God be strong and active in this room and in our community, and I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.